are going to look at an area of scripture that is very difficult. Um, but before we get to that chapter, we want to look at chapter 9 and verse 1. Okay, Ezra has arrived at in Jerusalem and the problem is that the Israelites are taking for themselves verse 2 daughters for themselves and for their sons so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands they the hand of the princes and the rulers have been chief in the trespass and when I heard this thing I rent my garment my mantle plucked off the hair of my head and my beard and sat down astonished all right so what we have here the problem is is that we have believers marrying unbelievers and that is totally unacceptable by God for a believer to marry an unbeliever it has nothing to do with race it has to do with a believer marrying an unbeliever and whenever Ezra found out that this was going on in the church, his response to the unbeliever marrying the believer, really the believer marrying the unbeliever, he tore his mantle, tore the hair out of his head, and tore the beard off of his face. So it was a very, very grievous sin uh, that they were committing in believers marrying unbelievers. Now, understand that tonight and God still feels the same way tonight about that but we brought to your attention in the passage that God did not put the blame on the unbeliever because the unbeliever didn't know different so he didn't he didn't get upset with the unbeliever that was being married by the believer he got upset with the believer that was marrying the unbeliever and he still feels the same way about that, all right? Amen. Say praise the Lord. Now, we have a list in verse 1 of chapter 9, all of these various people from various nations, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. And so you would think that he's talking about a national thing or a racial thing, but it's not. These were all unbelievers. These were pagans from those nations. And they were marrying these pagans. You understand that so far? Okay. If at any time any of these people would have said like Ruth, thy people will be my people, and thy God will be my God, then it would have been okay. Because Ruth, a Moabitess, married Boaz, a Jew. So it didn't have anything to do with race. As long as she made that statement, thy people will be my people, and thy God will be my God, it was all right for Boaz to marry her. And we know that Moses, the mighty lawgiver, that said that it was wrong for the believing Israelite to marry the pagan, also married an Ethiopian. So it has absolutely nothing to do with interracial marriage. It has to do with interspiritual marriage that we have the problem here in the passage, all right? So at any time somebody in the world gets connected with any of you in the church, 
if they are in a position of saying, thy people will be my people. Thy God will be my God. That means that they become a born-again believer. There is no problem. You understand that. If you do, say praise the Lord. So again, it has nothing to do with race. It has to do with the spiritual condition of the individual. Say amen. And obviously, we want everybody to be saved. We want everybody to have an opportunity to be saved. That's what it's all about. Amen? All right. So in that process, then, we see that they are married to unbelievers here. It's not racial. And Ezra's response is to tear his beard out of his face, pull his hair out of his head, and rip his garments, and then go into a long prayer. He goes into a very lengthy prayer of intercession, and the results of that prayer is found in the 10th chapter of the book of Ezra. What is the outcome of this man's response? What is the outcome of this man's prayer? And this is what we're going to cover tonight. So in Ezra chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, if you'll look at it, please. It says, Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. And Shechaniah, the son of Jeiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now is there hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise for this matter, we longeth unto thee. We also will be with thee. Be of good courage and do it. Then arose Ezra and made the chief priests, the Levites, and all Israel to swear that they should do according to this word and they swear. Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. We ask your blessing to be upon the reading of your holy words. We give you all praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. All right. After Ezra had spent some time in prayer uh, over the situation and the people saw his response to the violation of the word of God. In verse 4 of chapter 9, they trembled at the word of the Lord. Now, after he has prayed, the Bible tells us that he is weeping, he's confessing uh, down before the house of God. And the Bible says, There assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. The first thing that I noticed about Ezra is when he got there, tearing his clothes, tearing the beard out of his face, pulling the hair out of his head over the sins of the people, is that Ezra could have turned his back on them. He could have walked away from them in disgust. But instead of doing that, instead of walking away from these people in disgust over their condition, he remained there, which, thank God, he did. Because if he had walked away from this people at this time over his disgust based on their condition, then they would have wholly given themselves over 
to the flesh and they would have been lost. And so the first thing I see in the passage is that Ezra had enough of God that when he was disgusted with the condition of the people, he did not leave them. He stayed there and he dealt with the sin that was in the camp and uh, a good result came from that. Uh, he could have looked at the situation and said, I am done with this, you know. And he could have walked away from that, but he didn't. So I thank God for that because these people, can you imagine the history of this people had Ezra done that? What would have been the outcome? What would have been the end result? Uh, what would have happened to all of these people's lives if this man had just turned away and walked away from the whole situation? But he did not do that. He stayed there. He wept over the sin of the people. He dealt with the sin of the people. He prayed, and as a result of that, we will see that a good outcome came as a result of that. Say amen. Now, the Bible tells us here in verse 1 that when Ezra had prayed, when he had confessed, weeping, casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled on him out of Israel a very great congregation of men, women, and children, for the people wept very sore. So this is the response of the church. When they saw this man of God come there, and then his response to the sin that was in their life. The response was a prayer, uh, the tearing of his hair and, and the beard and his garments, etc. What he did brought a response from the people. They went into repentance and they gathered there before him. And we will see it in a moment that just a large company of people gathered there in December, the ninth month of the year, the 20th day of the month. So it's very cold. It's sort of like maybe tonight, you know. And uh, they gathered there, and it was raining too. And the Bible says, here all these people are outside there, uh, and they're going to be dealt with. The sin is going to be dealt with. And the fact that it's cold in December and it's raining on them uh, adds to the misery of the situation. Obviously, the people are miserable. And it's a miserable situation because they have gone away from God Almighty. You understand that? So their departure from God and their departure from the Word of God, with the cold rain coming on them, that just adds more suffering to the people. But here they are, they are gathering before Israel, uh, before Ezra, and they are not indifferent. They are no longer indifferent. Do you understand what I'm saying? They are a people who are no longer neutral about their sin. They're not indifferent. Now, in Ezra's day, these people were not indifferent. They, they confronted their coldness. They confronted the indifference that was in their life. And they said, we're going to do something about the sin that is in our life. We're not going to just go to church and act like everything's okay. And we're not, we're not going to be indifferent and neutral concerning the things of God. We're going to do something with the coldness. We're going to do something with the indifference that is in our life. And we got it here tonight. We've got coldness and we've got indifference here. And I'm not just talking about people in the pew. I'm talking about leadership. There are people in the book of Ezra that have committed sin against God and they're in leadership, but they're not indifferent when they go to the house of God. They're not neutral. 
They're not cold. I want to just challenge you tonight, friends. Don't let ever let an indifferent, cold spirit get a hold of you. Because if you let that get a hold of you and it, and it just grabs a hold of you and you've come to church for years indifferent and cold, pretty soon you're going to have a confrontation like your pastor had tonight with an individual. Because this individual has been cold and different and indifferent for years. You may not know that, but I do. So nothing ever good comes out of a situation where you have a cold, indifferent spirit. You understand that? We have it in the church, but it wasn't in Ezra's day. Amen. Say praise the Lord. Now, hallelujah to the Lamb. And so when Ezra began to deal with the problem, they saw this man of God standing there, and they did something about it. So they gathered there before him, not indifferent, cold outside, but not cold on the inside. Standing in the rain, but repenting in the rain. Cold outside, rain coming on them, but they still knew we got to do something about this. This can't continue like it is. We've got to deal with the sin that is in the camp. Say, Praise the Lord. And so, what we have here is these people gather, and as I said, as you read the passage, you'll see they're standing in the rain or sitting in the rain. The Bible tells us that a man comes up with an idea. This is what he does. In verse 2, Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land, yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Notice no coldness here, no indifference. They come right out and say, We have sinned against God. We have transgressed the commandments of God. So they are making a a confession of their sin. This is the only way that you can have revival. Is when you get rid of the coldness and the indifference out of the church. Amen. That's the only way you can have revival. When people are confronted with their sin and they say, I've sinned against God. And they confess that sin and they get right with God. You never have revival until people get honest with God. And stop being cold when they come to the house of God. And, and stop being indifferent. Say praise the Lord. So we see this man, you know, putting something into action here. Some confession uh, over the sin that is in, in the life here. And so there's something going on here. Something's going to do. They're going to do something about it. Praise the Lord. You understand what a pastor's preaching to you tonight? Amen. Okay. So, amen. Anytime you have a real revival in a church... This is what's going to happen. You're going to have cold and different situations that are going to repent. They're going to confess. And uh, they're going to get real with the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, when you have indifference in the church, and we have it in the church today, not just this one, but all over America, there is indifference and coldness in the church of the living God. True revival will do two things to an indifferent person. An indifferent, cold person, when true revival hits the church, will either cross over and get on the side of Jesus, or that cold and indifferent person will make it very clear that they are of the devil. See, God is going to bring that individual to a place where they're no longer neutral. 
They're going to make up their mind one way or the other. They're going to get with God or they're going to get with the devil. And it's going to be very clear to everybody where everybody stands. There's not going to be people standing in neutral territory or neutral ground being cold and indifferent. Not when real revival takes place. But the reason why today there is a coldness and an indifference in the people in the church today is because we're not in real revival. So people come and they're cold and they're indifferent and they hide in the pews. But you let a real move of God take place with a real man of God and you will see people either cross over and get on the side of Jesus or make up their mind they're going with the devil all the way. Because you cannot be neutral. You cannot be indifferent. You cannot be cold. Jesus said, I will spit you out of my mouth if you're lukewarm. He doesn't want you lukewarm. He wants you either hot or cold. He wants you in fire, on fire for Him or He wants you, listen to me, no neutral ground. Either say, alright, I'm going to live for the devil, cold. Or I'm going to live for God, fire. With Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation says, He will spew you out of His mouth. And I don't want to be that person in Laodicea. That is cold and indifferent. You know what I'm saying? Now, if you're cold, that's one thing. But to be indifferent, that's lukewarm. And and the Lord, you got to make up your mind. You're going to be cold. All right? Be cold. But don't come in here anymore. Amen? You want to get on fire for the Lord? You want to live for God? You're more than welcome. Praise the Lord. And so this church in the book of Ezra had revival. Because... They refused to be cold and indifferent concerning the things of God. They crossed over, if you will, and they said, we're going to follow Jesus Christ. Amen? So we have this man, second night, he's coming up with this idea. What is this idea? Well, verse 3. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. This man says, here's what we're going to do. We have sinned against God. We've transgressed against God Almighty in this, in that we have married unbelievers, pagans. So what we're going to do is we are going to divorce them. We're going to put them away. Now you think about that. You talk about, if you will, just, I mean, holiness on a high level. These people have violated the Word of God, and it's a known fact that it's a violation of the Scripture. And so the answer is divorce them. I ask you tonight, in the New Testament age, you with me here? What should be done by the Christian that is married to an unbeliever? Are we to do the same thing that Ezra did in his day and the people of God did in their day? Divorce the unbelievers. No, you need to be thankful today that you're living in a different time. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it gives us the guideline in the New Testament as to how to handle these things uh, in the church. So go to 1 Corinthians 7, please. All right, in verse 13 and 14, 
there. You ought to say praise the Lord. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. Now obviously we're not talking about somebody that's a believer in the church going out and marrying an unbeliever. We're talking about somebody, let's say both the husband and the wife are unbelievers. And one of them comes to the church and becomes a believer. But the other one doesn't become a believer. So is that believer, that New Testament believer now, is she like in the Ezra of day, Ezra's day, is she to divorce that man? Or vice versa? Is he to divorce her be, simply because she's an unbeliever? No. The Bible tells us here uh, in verse 13, and the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So if that unbelieving husband is pleased to dwell with her, you know, and he understands she's a Christian and she's going to live as a Christian, but uh, he doesn't want to be a Christian, he's an unbeliever, but he, he's willing to live with her. The Bible says to that woman, do not put him away. And then the Lord goes on and he says here, the reason for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, that means set apart, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. That means they're set apart. Okay. So what God is saying here is this. If you have a situation where you have a believer married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever is willing to live with the believer in that, in that condition, you are not to put them away. Because the believer sanctifies the unbeliever. But that doesn't mean that they're saved. What it means is there's an influence that that believer brings to that marriage and that influence of the believer upon that marriage may result in the, the unbeliever coming into the kingdom of God. Amen. And then he goes on and he explains here uh, in verse 14 also, the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. They're set apart. How are they holy? How are they set apart? By the believing spouse. The fact that you're a believer, you sanctify your children. So tonight, I, I know I'm very aware I'm preaching to some that are married to unbelievers, and you have children with them. Uh, the good news is the fact that you're a believer and you remain married to that unbeliever, amen, you are influencing the unbeliever to be saved. And also, your children, because you're a believer, they're a set apart unto God. So don't worry about your children, you know, even though they, they are the offspring, maybe, maybe between a believer and an unbeliever, so don't worry about your children. They're holy in the eyes of God. They're set apart in the earth. So thank God that we live in different days now. Because if we were living in Ezra's day, there'd be a lot of divorcing going on. A lot of believers divorcing unbelievers. But that's not the case in this day. Times have changed. There are some things that have changed from the Old Testament day. And we're not living in that day now in these certain, certain things. But the Bible will make it clear as to when and what has changed. We can't just take it on ourselves and say, okay, we're going to change what the Old Testament did. No, only the New Testament can do that. Say praise the Lord. 
Are you clear on that? So are you glad today, if you're married to an unbeliever, that you don't have to run out and get a divorce from them tomorrow? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Maybe not. Maybe not so happy. I asked you last week what you, you know, what you thought the, unbe the believer should do with the unbeliever, and uh, I think some of y'all were hoping when you got to church tonight, I said, hell, every one of you go divorce the old guy. But, but that's not the case. So we got, got to stay with the Bible. Amen. So I'm sorry to tell you that you're not free to go out and do that because, you know, you, you got children to look at. Amen. And, and you are a husband and a wife and so on and so forth. And there's an maybe a chance that that unbelieving wife or unbelieving husband will get in the church. Amen. As you influence them for, for the Lord Jesus Christ. So we clear on that. But in Ezra's day, it was totally different because we're dealing with a theocracy in Ezra's day. A theocracy means God is king and ruling over one particular nation. And that one particular nation is a light and a witness to the world, obviously, to win others, Gentiles, to Jesus Christ, to God. But it is a theocracy. God is king over a nation that is in covenant with him as a nation so that he deals with them a little bit differently than he does with us on an individual basis in the church. Do you understand these things? If you do, say praise the Lord. So, but I want you to just think about this. The fact that the church, the people of God in Ezra's day, refuse to be cold and indifferent about this, they're going to do something about it. We're talking about extreme holiness here. For Shechaniah to say, we are going to divorce them. We have broken God's covenant. We're out of God's will. We violated the word of the Lord. And the only way we can fix it is to divorce these pagans. I want you to think about that. I sort of feel sorry for the pagans. Because the believer knew what they were doing. Israel knew what Moses said in the law about a believer marrying an unbeliever. And these pagans, they get married to these Israelites, and for the most part, they probably have no idea that it's wrong. And then all of a sudden, because Israel is going to have a revival, you know, God's calling them back to obedience to the word of the Lord. All of a sudden now, these poor pagan women and men are going to have to be divorced by these backslidden Israelites. And can you imagine the, the wrenching and the tearing and the misery, the breaking up of families, the breaking up and separation of loved ones that will take place here. And the Bible is clear in, in chapter 10 that there were children that were born in these marriages. And when that pagan man or that pagan woman is divorced, and those little kids, the misery that's going to take place in the breaking apart of that family. Can you imagine the misery? But misery always comes to everyone who gets out of the will of God. If you want to know what life is like, look at these people right here. If you want to know what life is like for a person who violates the word of God and disobeys the word of God and breaks his covenant, you want to know what life is like all you got to look at is this passage right here 
and you see people that are miserable, misery has come to this people because they have disobeyed the word of the Lord. Amen. Now, if you're a believer tonight and you go out and you marry an unbeliever, you're in violation of the scripture. And and I want you to know the Bible tells us what's going to happen. You're going to have a miserable, miserable situation. Amen. And, and you don't want to have anything to do with it. If these people a couple of years back would have just thought it through. If they would have just seen the big picture and not have done that, they would have saved themselves untold misery. But they went ahead and they disobeyed God. They broke His commandments. They married unbelievers. And now we see the wrenching and tearing apart of families. And you can only imagine the misery that's taking place here when the leadership of the church is telling the congregation, we can fix this problem but the only way we can fix this problem is to separate the families. You can only imagine the pain. You can only imagine the suffering that will take place when you see a husband and a wife ripped apart and little kids tore apart from their families in order to get right with God on earth. Well, it's not the leadership's fault. Amen. That they've got to stand up and they've got to bring a word of judgment like this and they've got to bring a word of correction like this that you're going to have to divorce these, these people you've married to. It's not their fault that they've got to do that. I'm sure they don't feel good about that. No leader ever feels good about reprimanding the church. Nobody, no leader ever feels good about reprimanding an individual or correcting an individual for something they've done in the church when they get out of line and get out of order. There's no leader that I know that's of God that enjoys that. And these men, Ezra and Shechaniah, and these other leaders that will be involved with this, they're, they're not getting anything. They're not feeling good about this situation. I'm sure it's hard for them, but thank God they had enough courage to correct what needed to be corrected, reprimand what needed to be reprimanded, deal with what needed to be dealt with. He said, just covering their eyes to the situation. They had the courage to do it. But the fact that they've got to come up with something so serious, so intense, as to breaking families apart, I know it didn't make them feel good. But no wonder Ezra goes off in, in another room and starts crying and weeping before God, just contemplating what he's got to do in order to fix the situation within the church. But he's not the cause for the misery. These people who have disobeyed the Lord God Almighty, they're the cause of their own misery. You're not careful in this age and this you read this passage, you say, well, I think the leadership went too far. No, they didn't. The people caused their own misery in departing from the living God. They turned their back on the commandments of the Lord and they knew what they were doing. And it wasn't the unbeliever's fault. It wasn't the pagan's fault. It was their fault. It was those people's fault. That's why they're miserable. 
you're miserable tonight in the church living God. It's not your pastor's fault. It's not. Are you with me today? Oh, don't give me that. That's a bunch of foolishness. It's not your pastor's fault. It's your fault. You're miserable because you haven't been right with God for years and you know it. And if judgment has to come and reprimand has to come and rebuke has to come and things have to be corrected, don't get mad at your pastor. That should never have to happen anyway. If you just think about what you're going to do before you do it. Look up into the future, years ahead, and see the big picture of your decision. Amen. So now we have misery in the camp. They're all standing in the cold rain. It makes it more miserable. But they're going to do something about it. They're going to go through with this. And it's not going over the top. It's not going too far. It's what God requires. Amen. My family knows. My family knows. If it's not in God, it's not happening with me. And you know it too. You don't play games with me. I'm not going to play games with you. I haven't changed anything. If it's not in God, it's not happening with me. If it's in God, I have no problem. So my family knows where I stand. And, and I, I just be honest with you, and I don't want to embarrass you, but I thank God for Thomas. This young man right here, he's insisting on coming to the house of God. And everything that I can determine about this young man is all good. Is all good. Gold. I spent three days with this young man. Three days. And I haven't heard anything coming out of his mouth that would, would, would you know, lead somebody away from God in any way. Hallelujah. You hear what your pastor's saying tonight? And, I, and I, forgive me, man, but I just got to talk a little bit here because the church sees you sitting there. The situation is this. I held out and even meeting the young man. I wouldn't even meet with him. Isn't that the truth? Wouldn't even meet with him until the Lord said it was okay. You know why? Because if he had any, you know, we already got a de desperate situation here. And if he's going to help facilitate the thing away, further away from God, I don't need to meet him. But the Lord told me Sunday, meet him. And I want to tell you something. He's gold. He wants to be in the house of God. Amen? Praise the Lord. He's the one who started talking to me about God when I met him Sunday. Started talking about, I want to be, I'd like to be a missionary to Africa. Some of you don't like that. You know why? Because you want me to put myself in your situation. I handle everything the same way. I would even meet the young man until the Lord said it's okay. And I spent three days with him. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Say thank you, Jesus, tonight. My battle tonight. My trouble's not with Thomas. I'll tell you that right now. So I'm just going to tell you as a church, when you greet this young man, you greet him with the utmost respect. Because he's worthy of it. He deserves it. You hear what I'm saying to you tonight? I don't care if you like it or not. I'm just telling you the truth about the situation. 
You're not going to put me in your little box and your little box thinking. Because I don't work that way. Say praise the Lord. So we got to work it. we got to be careful. i got a young man here that could end up coming in the kingdom of God. And that's the way I'm going to work it. And both of them know it. My daughter knows it. My daughter knows it's not in God. And I've already talked to Thomas about it. He knows it's not in God. Then they're going to go right down the road without God. And I'm not going to be in it. They know it. They know it. Now I'm trying to embarrass them. You know what? You might as well test the thing. Might as well prove if, if it's real or not. If it's real or not, it can be tested. So praise the Lord. I just want you to know, Thomas, I appreciate you, man. And he knows that I've told him publicly. And now publicly, I've told him privately. Now I've told him publicly. Hallelujah. This man, I think, has more fear, more respect for some of the things of God than even some of you crazy people do. And you know the truth. He doesn't even know the truth. He doesn't even know the truth. You know the truth. You act like a devil. At least he don't act like a devil. I talk to you. What you need to do is you need to find a place and repent. Y'all, we'll throw you out, Pastor. You go right ahead and cry. You go right ahead and cry. He can't throw me out. Only Jesus Christ can throw me out. Why you talk like that, Pastor? Because I'm not stupid. I'm not stupid. Say praise the Lord. If it's not in God, I'm not in. And I okay, all right. So we got that taken care of. Now I'm going to talk to some of you. Some of you, moms and dads, you wouldn't take a stand. If you knew they were involved with somebody that wasn't in God, you wouldn't take a stand for anything because you don't stand for anything. You let them run around. You know they're running around. You never said one word. You never got involved with it. You never tried to witness to them. You never tried to win them to God. Didn't do anything because you are cold and indifferent to the things of God. I got a man this morning and a wife this morning. Uh, they're hurting right now. You know why? Because they took a stand against the very thing I'm preaching to you about right now. They told their, their uh, child, you're not going to be involved with an unbeliever. You understand? You went to God, fine, the same thing. No problem. Went to God, no problem. Sneaking around behind the back, lying about it. They took a stand. He's not in church tonight. They call me. They're hurting tonight. I said, I want to tell you something, brother. I said, I'm not going to correct you one way or the other how you how you handled it. That's your business. The fallout that took place, that's your business. But I'm going to tell you something, brother. I thank God for you because you don't play games. And what you did, you did to honor and glorify God. And you know what the Bible says. And He knows what the Bible says. So I said, I know you're hurting right now, but I want to tell you something. Your pastor thanks God for you. Because I'm tired of family. I'm tired of husband. I'm tired of husbands and wives and dads and moms that play games. Game players. We need some people that'll take a stand for what's right. 
So I said, you know, and, and they didn't want to tell on anybody. But I said, by the way, you know, this person was with an unbeliever. And they were with some church kids, people in the church, some kids in the church. I said, who were the kids in the church? Pastor, I really don't want to tell. Well, but it's your pastor asking, so I want to find out. You know why I want to find out? Because I want to find out who could be influenced with that. Who could be tripped up by that. When I found out, I got young ladies in the church running around with young men. And I didn't know about it. And I hope to God the parent didn't know about it. But I want to tell you something tonight, church. When I heard who the young ladies were, one of them's a young girl running around with boys in the church. See, for me, it's not just being about accountable with who you hang out with in the world. It's about being accountable to your parents and about being accountable to your pastor, even if they're in the church. Because there's a young girl today hanging around with boys. She's got a problem. She's going to fail. And does mom and dad even know about it? That concerns me. There has to be authority. There has to be accountability. That you got to hold your kids accountable for what they're doing. You need to know what they're doing. You need to who, know who they're hanging with and, and who. You understand what I'm saying? The old pastor, they're in the church. You still need to know it. And your pastor needs to know it too because your pastor might say, you know what, I got a red flag on that. That young girl can't stand it. She already can't look the pastor in the face. And I'm not trying to be a lord over God's heritage. You think I am, and that's your problem, not mine. I'm not trying to be a lord over God's heritage, but I'm going to tell you something. In case you you don't get it tonight, we got big problems in this church with our young people. And we're going to do everything they can. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to preach the word of the living God. I'm going to take a stand where i got to take a stand in my family. I'm going to take a stand in the church where i got to take a stand. Hallelujah. I've got to do it by myself, I'll do it. But this is real. And if, if what I'm saying to you, if this is hurting your feelings, you wouldn't have survived Ezra's day. When the commandment came down to rip families apart in order to be right with God. Separately. You talk about intense holiness. That's high-level holiness. And you know what the church did in Ezra's day? There was only a few, a handful, not even a handful of people in the church that didn't go with the decision. Only a few people in the church said, we're not with that. The rest of the church said, we're going to do it, Ezra. We're going to put away our pagan wives. And only a few people said, I don't think we should do that. I don't know why they, they would say that. I don't know why they wouldn't join in. But I'm just telling you, it never goes completely smooth in the church. You're always going to have a few that don't want to do it. But the majority said, Ezra, we'll do it. And we'll enter in a covenant with you, Ezra. We'll enter in a covenant with God that we're going to do it. And we're talking about priests, and we're talking about singers. We're talking about leaders of Israel, and we're talking about the laity. 
the priests, the singers, and the laity as well, all involved in this horrible sin against God. You understand? Priests have to repent. Put away wives. Singer has to put away his, his pagan wife. Uh, pagan. You understand what I'm saying? Only a few said no to the king because they refused to be indifferent. They refused to, they, they owned it. So we got the problem. And it's going to be hard for us to do it, but we're going to do it because we have to because it, it's honoring and glorifying God. See, what I'm preaching to you tonight, church, is probably hardly ever preached in any church. Because we're living in a society of religious folk. Ezra is calling these people to holiness. God calls us all to holiness. No matter what the price is that you have to pay. Remember I preached to you Sunday night? To follow Jesus, it's going to cost you. And these people right here are willing to pay that price of separating families in order to be right with the Lord. See, maybe some of you are not aware of these passages in the Scripture, so maybe my own family's not even aware of it. And you don't understand why I take a stand that I do. It's because I know the book. I know what God says can happen and what God says can't happen. So I'm just going to say to all you people out there, all you young people out there, whether they're in the church or they're outside of the church, ultimately it's going to have to come through your pastor anyway, so you might as well not play any games. And you got somebody that's from the world, you bring them to church, and you don't even bring them to your pastor and say, hey, pastor, I want to introduce this young man or this young woman to you. That tells me you're messed up. Because I'd never bring a young woman to the house of God without introducing her to my pastor. It's your pastor. It's going to have to come through the pastor if it's going to be of God. If it's not of God, you go after the justice of the peace to do it. But if it's going to be through, it's going to be God, it's going to have to come through me. So don't you think I ought to know who you're connected to? You understand what the pastor's saying? So if we can do our best to bring them to a place where they say, your people will be my people and your God will be my God if they're not a believer. Or if they're in the church, that yeah, it's all right. I don't, I don't feel anything wrong with it. Well, we're not going to do it because we don't know what pastor's going to say. He's going to say no to the whole thing. So we're just going to do it behind his back. Then you got a big no. You don't just have a no. you got a big no. And I know some of you don't care. But I'm still going to do what I'm supposed to do. I want the best for you. I want the best for mine. In God. I want the best for you. In God. I'm not going to withhold anything from you. It's good. I just want to be involved with it. So I can help you. Some of you like to live in Ezra's day. Some of you, like I told you earlier, some of you were hoping that I'd stand up here and I'd say, you can go divorce that old guy. You were hoping. Hoping. You were. I know you were. 
Then you found out tonight that you got to live with them, even though they're never leaving you go. Right? What you going to do? You divorce them. You have to go to work. Support your own kids. Support yourself. At least he's bringing home some groceries. Hallelujah. You've got something to be thankful about. you got something to praise God about. He's bringing home some groceries. He's supplying a house for you to live in. Hallelujah. He's not, it's not all bad. He's not doing all everything bad. He's doing some things pretty good. And if he's an unbeliever, you need to tell him, you're a good supplier, you're a good provider, you take care of us. And, and I want you to know, I appreciate what you do for me and what you do for my family. And if you'll talk to that unbelieving husband that way, I'm not saying it'll save him, but at least he'll make it easier on you. you know, if you're not careful, you get this idea because they're an unbeliever, you can treat them like a dog. No, no, no. You need to treat them better than if they were a believer. You need to treat them better. If you treat them better than if they were a believer, they might become one. Woo! Man, I get chills all the way up down my spine. That's just shocking some of you guys out there. You're totally shocked tonight. You're supposed to treat your unbeliever better than you would treat your believer. Praise the Lord. Well, the pastor, my husband, he's he's one of them kind. He's always chasing other women. Why is he chasing other women? You should take care of him. He should make it so good and so hot. You don't want to come from nobody else. For him to even look at something else, it makes him just sick. This is reality. Why is he having to look look around? Why? Hallelujah. He likes to go eat it. He don't like to eat my food. He likes to go eat in another restaurant. That's the point. Fix him some good food. He won't go to another restaurant. That food's so good, man. He don't have no need to go to another restaurant. You need to treat him better than you treat treat him if he were a believer. Now, if it's a woman, just slap her around. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, you know, I'm just kidding. That's not right. She doesn't believe in woman. Pray for her. Take care of her. Show her you're a man of God. Amen? Show her you're a man of God. You go out and eat with her. She sees you looking at all the women walking down the mall and you're, you're a Christian. You're a believing husband. And you're looking at everything that walks down the, down the hall. And, and she's an unbeliever. She says, yeah, yeah, you're a real Christian. You hear what your pastor's saying? Good practical preaching. You never have a license from God to mistreat an unbeliever, an unbelieving husband. God wants you to win him to God. They're sanctified by your life. It's hard. But God's grace will be there for you. If 
talked to somebody just the other day. I said, you know what? You have grace that I don't have because you're in the situations that I'm not in. And grace is for you on a higher level than it is for me. Don't forget that. God knows where you are. He give you, he'll give you extra grace on top of grace to live with that unbelief. Now, okay, now I need to correct something because I don't want to hurt anybody now. I'm not saying if your husband ran off with another woman, you didn't take care of him. I just want to make that clear. Sometimes in some of these situations, they're just, they're just ungodly and it's sin and it's wrong and they did it on their own and you didn't push them. You didn't do anything. You had nothing to do with it. So I just I just need to bring some clarity to that. Okay? So we're not going to lump this all into one deal. All right? But your pastor, if I have situations like that, I always question. Always question. Did you take care of me? I just need to make sure you did what you were supposed to do. And I, you, I'm telling you, I question myself. Did you take care of me? Well, you're responsible. Did you tend to the other woman's arms? Did you do that? I asked that. You know. No, Pastor. I took care of it. This, 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 and that. I said, okay. I just needed to know that. Say praise the Lord. So I, I'm not going to get mad at somebody else. If you're responsible for it, you can sit in the church. You can still be in the church. But if you were responsible for the divorce, just because you're sitting in the church don't mean that you're innocent. Somebody say praise the Lord. So we're in New Testament days. The believer is, is a sanctifier of the unbeliever. So you are supposed to be Christian with a desire to bring these people to God. If you don't succeed on judgment day, make it where God can't point a finger at you and say you are the problem. You're the reason why they didn't get in the church. Would you have survived in Ezra's day if you had to be a part of the congregation and tear apart families and separate to be right with God? Would you do that? They did. Verse 3, look at it again. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wise and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So these people trembling at the word of God. They're under conviction. And they're confessing their sin. And they're doing it. They say, we're going to make a commitment to do this. As hard as it is. As difficult as it's going to be. We're going to do it in order to be right with God. I have to do it in order to be right with God. Can't compromise. Check and I say, verse 4. Rise for this matter. Belongeth unto thee. We also will be with thee. Be of good courage and do it. Then arose Ezra. Shechaniah tell him what needs to be done. He says, Ezra, he says, you're the one that's going to be responsible to get the job done. So Ezra, take courage. You're going to have to be a man of courage to do this. But, courage, but, but Ezra, no. The leader, this man's saying, we're with you. We're going to stand with you. We're going to be with you in this decision. It's going to take a lot of courage to do it, but we're with you. You get it? You see it? Verse 5, Then arose Ezra and made the chief priests, the Levites, and all Israel to swear that they should do according 
to this word, and they swear. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Johanan, the son of Elisha. And when he came thither, he did eat no bread nor drink water, for he mourned because of the transgression of them that had been carried away. We're talking about Israel. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem and unto all the children of the captivity. They should gather themselves together unto Jerusalem. Say praise the Lord. I want you to notice something here. The Holy Ghost spoke to me today. This operation that must be done is done by those that are qualified. God didn't put it into the hands of just anybody. It was leadership that took care of it. You have to be qualified to handle matters at that level. You start putting your hand in stuff. You think you know what's best. You know what you should do. You start putting your hands in it and you will mess everything up. And then you're going to try to step in and try to fix everything when you're the one who took the steps to alienate the situation. If you are not qualified to handle something, keep your hands off of it. Because you start putting your hands in a situation you're not qualified to handle. You're going to mess it up. And I can tell you, not just by the Word of God, but I can tell you as pastor, I can tell you every time somebody tries to get in something, you know, they think that they, I don't know, for some reason they think they can start pastoring themselves. And every time they do, they mess it up. And I've told people point blank, I said, you leave this situation alone because if you don't, it's going to backfire on you. You can share your opinion, and that's fine, and I'll let you. But not long ago, I told somebody, I told them, you leave this situation alone, and they, they shared their opinion, and I let them share their opinion. Then I said, I'm out of it. I'm out. I'm out. You want it, you take it. I'm out. But when you start messing with it, I told them it's going to backfire on you. So leave it alone. I can tell you it came to pass, just like I said. They start making decisions. They think it's what's best, and they make a decision. They find out that wasn't a good decision. Then they want to go over there to try to rectify it, bring the thing back together. And they're the ones that said separate, stay apart, stay away. But yet they want the fellowship to be there. You can't have it both ways. You can't straddle a fence and say, don't have nothing to do with them. And then all of a sudden say, yeah, I have something to do with them. Which do you want? Which way do you want, honey? We have to be thankful that a, a pastor, and if I'm wrong, I apologize, a pastor is the only one that's qualified to handle certain situations. You get involved with it, you're going to mess it up. Okay? And these people right here did not get involved with it. Only leadership did. Therefore, they held the head. You can hold the head or you can not hold the head. And what that means is you allow proper leadership to take care of it. Holding the head means 
that you are allowing proper authority to work in the situation. Okay? Colossians chapter 2, the Bible talks about a people who did not hold the head. That means they separated themselves from the authority that was in their life. Okay? So you're going to hold the head, which means leave the authority in its proper position, the wisdom of that authority in its proper position, or you're going to take it on. And when you do, Colossians 2 says, you're no longer holding the head. Because you're distancing, you're separating yourself, you're distancing yourself from the head if you're a part of the body. You can't do that. And so what we have in the passage is we have people who are qualified to handle this type of an emergency. It is desperate. It is an emergency situation. Horrible things can come. And the wrath of God can come as a result if it's not handled correctly. And people can be destroyed if it's not handled correctly. So we've got to have the right people in place to deal with it. Do you understand that? You have to hold the head. Hold the head. Keep the head. Keep the wisdom of God. Keep Jesus is the ultimate head. Christ is the head. Don't separate yourself from the headship of Christ. Authority, the wisdom of God. Depend on Him. The head is what nourishes you. You have to have Him in your life. If you don't want it, then you go against the Word of the Lord. Say praise the Lord for Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jonathan, of jo Johanan, the son of Elisha. And when he came thither, he did eat no bread nor drink water, for he mourned because of the transgression of them that had been carried away. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem unto all the children of the captivity that they should gather themselves together unto Jerusalem. And what, whose silver would not come within three days? according to the counsel of the princes and the elders and all his substance, should be forfeited and himself separated from the congregation of those that have been carried away. So they sent out notification that everybody is supposed to come up and we're going to fix this problem. We're going to deal with this problem. You come up, he says, if you don't come up, you're going to be excommunicated from the church. We don't follow the leadership's order for you to come. We can deal with it. Excommunication, and you're going to forfeit what you have. Okay? Now, if we started doing that here in this house, we'd have, I'm going to tell you something, we'd have a revolt. But I will say this today, that churches, especially in America, need to clean house. There needs to be a house cleaning. Not of the people that you can't locate, but the people that you can locate. People who should repent, who refuse to repent in the church. If they won't repent, you should deal with them. You see, 
So when the look at it, so you'll understand where I'm coming from here. Verse 7, they made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem unto all the children of the captivity that they should gather themselves together unto Jerusalem and that whosoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the prince of the elders, all his subjects should be forfeited and himself separated from the congregation of those that had been carried away. So they knew where the people were. And they said to those they knew where they were, you come up so we can fix this problem. All right? And if you don't, then we can't fellowship with you anymore. And you'll forfeit all that you, all these things. You know what I'm saying here? That's what the Bible said. Not me, but what the Bible said here. We have a church row, people who belong to this church. We can clean house, and we will. We're not too far away from our from our meeting. We're going to clean house and. We're going to take names off of that role, you know, for whatever purpose, whatever reason. They're not in the church anymore. And we're going to take their names off, okay? But that's not what the Bible's teaching here. The Bible's not teaching removal of people that you don't know where they are. It's telling you to remove people that you, you know their location, but they refuse to come. And that's what has to happen in the church. Not the cleaning of the house or the removal of people that you don't know where they are, but the cleaning of the house of the church of people that you know where they are, but they refuse to get right with God. They refuse to repent. There has to be a house cleaning. Obviously, much grace, much mercy, long-suffering, even years But if the person, individual, refuses to repent, you can't fellowship with them. You can't keep going with them. And so the passage is teaching you clearly it's about people that you know where they are. Right? Not about people you don't know where they are. Well, this is an intense passage. Intense. Praise the Lord. If you feel you've been wronged, what does the Bible say? The Bible says if you feel you've been wronged, you go to the person and you say you wronged me. That's what the Bible says. And you go to that person and you try to make it right and they refuse to make it right with you. What does the Bible say? You go get somebody else in the church and you take them with you as a witness and you say to them you wrong me and I've got a witness will you repent of that and the Bible says if they don't repent then you bring it before the church and the church then has to deal with it as a, a government situation say we got an individual that refuses to acknowledge they did somebody wrong and you deal with it in a public way but it's not the, the person that committed the offense that goes is the person that was offended that goes. See, we got it all backwards. That's why I tell you, if we're not careful, we're going to mess things up. And your pastor 
honestly, and I'm being honest with you. I have no vendettas. I'm being honest with you. I'm trying my best to pastor you. And I'm trying to help you. And I'm trying to help situations. And I'm trying to help your kids. And I'm trying to help mine. And I'm doing everything I possibly can. But if you don't listen to me, you take it out of my hands. It's impossible for me to put it back. we have a tendency to think we know what to do. And oftentimes we go completely opposite of what the Lord says in this word to do. Okay? Alright. Can we praise the Lord? Find mm, me as well. we got a very severe injunction here in verse 8. If he doesn't come, three days, give you three days, give you plenty of time to come. If you don't, you are to be, you'll forfeit yourself, the substance that you have, you'll be separated from the congregation of those that have been carried away. Say with me, separated from the congregation of those that have been carried away. It's all about separation. It's about holiness. Ezra is a man of God that's about, he's all about holiness. It's not a personal thing. It's about God's glory and holiness. Separation. In chapter 1, they separated themselves from Babylon. In chapter 2, or chapter 4, they separated themselves from the help of the unbeliever. In chapter 8, they separated themselves from the help of the arm of the flesh. And now they're separating themselves from evil alliances. Separation all the way through the book of Esther. I've got my tools out tonight. I've got my screwdrivers, spiritual screwdrivers and my wrenches out and, and, and everything, you know. And you say, well, Pastor, why don't you talk to me one-on-one? -on -one? Because you're not in a place in your mind where I can even talk to you. So tonight, I got all my tools out, and I'm doing everything I possibly can to help this church. Because if I help you, guess what? It helps me. It helps me. I can twist a screw in your head, tighten a screw in your head if you want to. Whatever, you know. Something going on in your head. Whatever. Just what do I need? Do I need hacksaw? Do I need chainsaws? I got all tools I possibly can use. You Church, listen to me. If you had gone through what my wife and I went through Monday night, you would understand somewhat of the reason why I'm coming like I am tonight. We were sick at our stomachs. We know in the spirit something's not right. And no 
nobody has to say a thing. Something's not right. And we're the first to recognize that young woman there and myself when she's done. First to recognize it could be our own house. But the way I felt that night, there was something far more going on. And it has to do with this problem. You got a decision you're going to make. You're going to make a decision in your life and personal level. You will. You're either going to hold the head, which means you're going to keep the headship in its proper place in your life, or you're going to do what they did in Colossians chapter 2. Verse 19. I don't have time to get into all this in detail. But for some reason, there were some people that thought they needed something extra, more than Jesus Christ in their life. And so we're talking about the worshiping of angels in verse 18, so on and so forth. We need angels and Jesus, so on and so forth. And any time you get to a place where you believe you need something more than Jesus. You need angel worship in your life. So on and so forth. Verse 19, then you move in a place when you're vainly puffed up by your fleshly mind. Verse 18, when you're vainly puffed up by your fleshly mind, you no longer hold the head. The Bible says, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increased with the increase of God. What happens is you get fleshly, you get puffed up in your mind, and all of a sudden, you no longer hold the head. It's no longer, headship is no longer in its rightful place in your life. You're disconnected, you're separated from that authority. Accountability is no longer there. Nourishment is no longer there. Wisdom is no longer there. You're relying on your own. Okay? So Israel, in the book of Ezra, is holding the head. They're looking at the leadership and saying, no matter how hard it is, no matter how difficult it is, we're going to do what you tell us to do. We have to hold the head. Because if we don't, we disconnect ourselves from unity. It's in the body. The body doesn't function if you don't have the head in its proper place. It doesn't function properly. It's not going to be in fellowship properly. It's not going to be in unity if the head is not held up. Hold up the head, Pastor Jesus. Maintain the Lordship of Jesus in your life. And the authority that God has placed in your life. It's for your benefit. It'll bring the body together in unity and fellowship. You will see that's what happened to Ezra. Good things came. What other tool do I need to know? I pulled out every tool I know. Try to help you. What other tool do you need me to pull out tonight just to talk to you? 
I'm just talking to you. I'm not screaming. I'm hoping I speak in Thomas away. He said, I thought when sleep, then you start screaming instantly. If I'm not screaming tonight, I hope I speak in the way. Do, do, do I need, honestly, I'm, I'm willing. I'll sit down with each one of you families and we'll have a long talk. I'll, I'll give, you, give you, it took them three months to get this all straightened out. Three months. I'll take the next three years, three months of this year if you want to sit down with me, family on family, and let's pull the tools out and let's fix the situation. Okay? That's what you need. I'm willing to do it. I don't have to, but I'm willing to. Hopefully, we get it from the Word of God. Get it from the Word of God. Amen? I'd love to have that conversation with Pastor. You better be careful. You better pray before you step in that office that Pastor keeps his cool. I'm not real good at that. You come in there the right, with the right spirit, no problem. You come in there and bow up in me, I'm not good at that. Mark will tell you. Not because not he and I have any problems. How many of y'all want, want me to pull another tool? Anybody want another tool? I need anything else. You doing all right? You, know, you, you got your thumb up. That means I'm doing good, brother. You know why I'm doing good to you? Because you're doing good to me. You're doing good to God. When you don't need to get fixed, hallelujah, everything's happy with you, man. <laughs> But the pastor's hitting you between the eyes, you know, with a ton of hot crackling. He's sitting there going. He's my friend, though. That's ugly, isn't it? You ought to see. That, that was an ugly face, wasn't it? Man, you ought to see some of your faces. And I get to look at it for almost two hours. You didn't even like it for 10 seconds. I know you're not happy. I know you're not running and shouting. I don't care if you do. I'm not intending you to run and shout. I, I hope I'm keeping you awake, though. Do, do we have the ability anymore as a church to recognize when we miss it and own it and say it's us? Do we have that ability anymore? Are we all good? We all good. We don't need any of this. Your pastor, he's off in left field tonight. None of you need anything I said all night long. Everything's good here tonight. You're happy. Praise the Lord. You're living exactly the way you're supposed to do. You're not doing anything wrong. You're doing everything right. And that pastor just wasted two hours of your time. Anybody here like that? Did you, anybody here need what your pastor's saying? Okay, good. That means I didn't waste your time or mine. Hallelujah. Lord, would you give us another pastor? You know what? The next one we get, he'd be so mean. He'd be so mean. The third time, the pastor took, took over after I left. Man, they, they, 
They hated that guy so much, they starved him out. They didn't bring their tithe. They, just, you know, they, had, they said, hey, would you just go on? They, they didn't bring their tithe. They starved that man. That man had to borrow money to get out of town. That's how bad that church hated that man, Pastor Ivy. I, you didn't know that goes on, did you? I'm telling you because you asked my wife. They starved that man. He had to borrow money to put gas in his tank to get out of town. That's Pastor Ivy. They should have kept money. Praise the Lord. It's heavy, isn't it? This is like it. When you got in church less than a year ago, did you know it was going to be like this? You know what? She's doing the Lord, but she's been praying and fasting for this church. She loves this church. She loves her pastor. At least right now. Hey, separation. What's it all about? Separation from Babylon. Separation. Separation. It's all the way through. Separation. And I want you to notice something as we come to a close tonight. That God recorded everybody by name who transgressed. And the very ones that he recorded that came out of Babylon recognized them as doing something awesome. People that had come out and separated them from Babylon. He said, I'm going to tell you who separated themselves from Babylon. I want to tell you who went up to Jerusalem. He recorded their names. But when they failed, he also recorded their names in their failure. God's gonna, he's going to recognize you when you do what's right. But when you do what's wrong, he's going to call you by name. And he did. Same ones he called by name that did something good. He called them by name when they did something wrong. Whew, this is heavy. I'll exhale. Deep, deep, take a deep breath. Now, I'll tell you something. I needed to do that because I was about to faint or about to fall over, man. I was about to collapse over this. I had been breathing for like two hours. So I had, even though you didn't need to, I needed to breathe. Trying to teach me the word of God. Verse 9. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together in Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month, the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the street of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and for the great rain. See, they're freezing to death. They're cold, but they're not just trembling because of the temperature, they're trembling. Because of the word of God. I mean, they're literally sitting there shaking. Shaking. It has it is having that kind of effect on people. 
And Ezra the priest stood up and said unto them, Ye have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure, it's God's will, and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. But the people are many, and it is a time of much rain. We are not able to stand without neither. Is this a work of one day or two? For we are many that have transgressed in this thing. So, yeah, we're going to do it, but we can't do it standing out here in the rain. We can't do this thing in one or two days. We need a long period of time to fix this because so many of us have transgressed. And Ezra, in his wisdom, gives the okay. We're not going to try to fix this in one night, okay, or two days. We're going to take the time to do it right. That's wisdom. Take the time to do it right. And it took them three months to straighten the problem. Verse 14, let now our rulers of all the congregations stand and let all them which have taken strange wives in our cities come at appointed times. Let them be elders of every city and the judges thereof until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us. Ezra's afraid that the wrath of God is going to fall on these people because of this sin. So we're going to fix it. There's hope. There's hope. We're going to fix it for God's wrath going to fall upon us. Do you fear God tonight? I fear God tonight. Well, verse 15 tells us who didn't who wasn't with it, who wasn't with the decision. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, were employed about this matter, and Meshulam and Shabbatah, the Levite, helped them. Okay, so we have some, but I was telling us they weren't with it. In, in, and so, and I don't know if they're standing against the decision to separate the, from the pagan marriages, you know, break them up, or if they're not with the decision on the timing. See, I'm not sure if these guys are saying, we don't want to do this, it's been ordered us to do, or are they saying, we want it done now, we don't want to wait. I'm not clear on that, the Bible doesn't tell me which one it is. Maybe they were with the decision, but not with the time, time frame. Okay? So verse 15 again, only Jonathan, the son of Asael, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, were employed about this matter. That's the one that was with it, right? Yeah, they're with it. Okay, they're supporting it. Let me make sure here. Were employed, what did it say? Opposed it. Okay, so I'm right. The way it's read in the King James is a little bit different. So that's correct. Thank you for getting me out of that. Some of y'all just can't wait. Me to fall. I think I fall flat on my face. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord for when He's with me. Thank you for helping me clarify that they were opposing it. Okay? Verse 16, the children of the captivity did so in Israel, the priests, with certain chief of fathers after the house of their fathers. All of them by their names were separated and set down the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. 
They made an end with all men that had taken strange wives by the first day, the first month. And then we have the list in a moment. Among the sons of the priests that were found that had taken strange wives, named the sons of Onron and Goz, verse 19, they gave their hands that they would put away their wives and be guilty. They offered a ram flock for their trespass, so on and so forth. We have over a hundred names recorded. We have priests recorded. We have a singer recorded. We have the laity recorded. Over a hundred people were involved in this transgression. And they're all called by name. Okay? And they went about divorcing the pagan wives and the pagan men. And they went off. The pagan men went off. The pagan women went off, separated themselves from them. And in some cases, no doubt, the kids walked right out the door with them. And they tore the family apart. And there was great misery when it took place. It didn't have to happen that way if they had only a few years before had thought it through. What is going to be the big picture? What's going to be the outcome of this decision? They never, never, never took into account the fact that a man of God would show up with a word from God that would bring misery to everybody involved if they had just done it right to begin with. They would not have gone through the misery. It's important for us to obey the word of the Lord in our life, to not transgress the word of God in our life. Always see the big picture when you do because what is going to come as a result of that disobedience to the word of God is absolutely total misery to the believer. Stay away from it. In Psalm verse 44, all these had taken strange wives, and some of them, and, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. That brings us to the end of the book of Nehemiah. In the book of Ezra. So what we see is that God, God, made a way for people who were away from Him. People who were backslid. Basically, they were. They were in apostasy. But God made a way for that person, these people who were away from Him, to make it back to Him. And when they stop being indifferent and cold in their generation and they confessed their sin and, and repented of that sin and took action, they did what the Word required them to do, and they did it. They were restored back to covenant with God, fellowship with God, and the blessings of God begin to come back on their life. God always tries to make a way for the banished to be reconciled. God tries to restore and tries to save the individual who's away from the Lord. And that's what happened in the passage. It was very difficult what they had to do. But they got right with God. And God gave them away. And no wonder Shechaniah said, there's hope. There's hope. Verse 2, yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. There's hope. These people who've gone away from God can be restored. 
Israel goes off the scene. He finished his job. Nehemiah comes on the scene in Jerusalem, the book of Nehemiah. And I want you to notice something. Nehemiah talks about Ezra and his book. But when Nehemiah comes on the scene and Ezra finishes his job, Ezra is willing. Willing, listen, he's willing to subordinate himself to Nehemiah. Always be ready when it's necessary for you to relinquish position in order for somebody else to fill that role, always be ready when it's necessary to allow that to happen. Ezra, when it came time, when he got the job done and it was time for somebody else to step up, he subordinated himself to that person and understood it was necessary for his leadership role to take a second, to take a back seat. And that's what we see in the book of Ezra when he gets done with his job. What a great man he was. God has a plan. You've got, you've got a job to do once you get that job done. If there's somebody that God is raising up to take your place, always be ready to step down, to step out of position, and let that person take over the place of a wise man or a wise woman of God. And that's not an easy thing to do. But it is. So there's so many things that we can learn from Ezra, and uh, I thank God for the opportunity to have preached it to you. As far as I know, it is the last book in the Bible uh, for me to teach you in exposition form. I think I've ever done it before, the last one. And I have enjoyed bringing the Word of God to you. I hope it's been a blessing to you, an encouragement to you, and uh, instruction uh, to you. And, and I know some of you are probably thinking, but Pastor, we haven't gone through Chronicles. When we went through the Kings and the Prophets, we touched most of Chronicles. So I think I've, I've taught you the whole Bible. And so I got some theologians out there tonight. Uh, not because I taught you, but though we went through the whole, we've gone through the whole Bible. I've been here 20 years. Been here 20 years. Say again, go again. Who said that? Okay, we'll go again. Okay. I've been here 20 years, and, and by the grace of God, at least most of the Bible. Can't say every dot and comma. Most of the Bible we've taught you from Genesis to the Book of Revelation, and so may the Lord bless you real good, because He wants you to be healthy in the knowledge of God's Word. That's what it's all about. I hope I've been a blessing to you tonight. I know it, it in, in certain places it hasn't been fun for you or I, but I hope that as we continue to uphold the Lord Jesus Christ in our life, that we can maintain unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and continue to do the work of the Lord. And if it's God's will, and I haven't heard any different, I will go again. Okay? Say praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Somewhere, anyway. I love all of you. I really do love you. That's why I fight for you. That's why I fight so hard. So just turn, turn and walk away from every situation. But I love you. 
I want you to know that. Okay, let's stand. Let me pray. Father, I come before you tonight. I ask your blessing, bless upon uh, this congregation, this people. Father, we all at times miss it, make mistakes, do things that we shouldn't do. And we ask God your mercy and your grace to rest upon each and every one of us. We thank you, Lord God, for helping us being our God and our Savior. We ask, Lord Jesus, that your word will go deep into our hearts and our minds. Thank you for giving us understanding. Lord, let us be the people that are willing to act upon your word, people that are willing to serve you no matter what, people that are willing to pay a price, count the cost. Thank you, Jesus, for such an awesome example in the world tonight of a people who are willing to make their way back to you. Thank you for making a way for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.